Welcome to Super Intuit, a new podcast by Zamchik and Company. I'm Zach Zamchik, and for the past eight years, I've been creating immersive experiences, live events that break the fourth wall and invite the audience to move around, interact with performers, and change the course of the story. I'm into it all. House party musicals, escape rooms and haunted attractions, renaissance fairs, virtual reality, and I've been lucky to work with some of the best immersive creators in New York City, Las Vegas, and abroad. In this podcast, I'm going to bring in some of my amazing friends to tell you about their passions and challenge myself to dream up immersive experiences designed to share them with the world. I'm excited to introduce you to Brandon Michael Loudon, a technical writer by day and musical theater writer by night. Brandon is obsessed with the ways in which technology and pop culture shape our sense of self, our interactions with others, and our perception of the world around us. He uses highly guarded secret science to convert that enthusiasm into eclectic musical theater, exploring issues like artificial intelligence and gender inequality in sports through reference-laden banter and off-kilter pop and rock songs. Today, we'll be talking about the muse at the heart of his pantheon of passions, singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. All right, let's get super into it. Listen, Taylor Swift needs no introduction. She's a cultural touchstone, a generational icon. Arguably, the best way to get into her is just to listen to her music, and we'd be happy to produce that concert. But my task today is to find out why Brandon loves her and to design an experience that taps into that enthusiasm. I was blown away by the breadth and depth of his knowledge, so I let him steer the first half of our conversation. Here's his origin story, the first time he crossed paths with Taylor's work. Yeah, I'm a, a musical theater writer, and uh, that is how I got into Taylor Swift. It was January 2011, so uh, though I didn't know it then, that was the Speak Now era, uh, for those of you following along. <laughs> and uh, that had just come out in, in November, which was uh, her third album, uh, and the one that had uh, Mean was on that, and... Um, I, I also have a trouble remembering like what the hits are because I listen to the all the album cuts, so I, I don't remember like what regular people have heard on the radio. Uh, this is one of those rare moments where I get to be regular people. So I was working on a new musical, and the main character in the musical uh, was... Uh, it's actually kind of appropriate to the, the theme of this podcast uh, because it was a lot about her trying to... Uh, you know, it was a high school or an eighth grader um, trying to kind of navigate popularity and lunchroom politics and all that, uh, and was sort of uh, embarrassed about her nerdier interests um, and maybe trying to figure out how to get interested in what was popular and fit in. And as part of that, we had a series of fictional music artists who were kind of loosely and, and sort of like intentionally like you should be able to figure out who we're referencing here based on real life pop stars of the time. Uh, one of whom was a wholesome sort of girl next door country pop star uh, who is based on Taylor Swift. And so in order to actually write uh, the this sort of 
song that was going to be kind of like a parody of what a Taylor Swift song might be, I had to listen to a Taylor Swift song and and figure out what that was. And I was just writing the lyrics for that, but, you know, I still needed to get a vibe of like, uh, what kind of content have we got going on here? You know, what should this song be like? How can I wink at people that this is supposed to be kind of like a Taylor Swift song? And it'll be, you know, funny in a sort of ironic, detached way. Brandon wasn't seeking out mainstream pop music or singer-songwriters those days. He was too busy headbanging to another genre. It was mostly a lot of prog rock at the time, which is, of course, I mean, that could be a whole other episode. Dream uh, Theater. Yeah, and, Dream Theater. Yeah. You know, you got Rush there. Um, uh, I have I have a funny story about Rush involving Taylor Swift that we will, we will, we'll get to in the journey. Did prog rock figure into one of the other kind of pastiches that you were creating for this musical? <laughs> so, wow, you very, very perceptive. Uh, in fact the the favorite band of this this main character that she was kind of embarrassed to let people know she loved was an 80s synthesizer-y hard rock group uh, that was very obviously a prog thing. Uh, yeah, unsurprisingly, that was where it started. And of course, in my mind, um, when I started writing the show, it was kind of like that was in opposition to the, the you know mainstream pop garbage. It's whatever. funny. And the, the first musical I ever attempted to write, um, I have never completed <laughs> a full-length musical. Um, uh, none of was... us ever do. Uh, that's the secret. <laughs> oh my God, they're never done. That's it. I um, I was in high school choir and doing all of the shows and um one of the 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 idea was romeo and juliet except that uh juliet was an actress and romeo was a techie backstage oh boy oh boy i might have gender flipped it which i think would be more exciting oh man this is i'm I'm on board already (laughs) and then i was like maybe orchestra plays the actor music the montague music you know and then uh like a rock band plays the techie music um and years later funny story um my one kind of gimmicky number where uh they trip over a cable backstage and all the lights go out and they have to use their phones for lights were obviously that idea ended up in in the heights a favorite musical of mine <laughs> yeah and and um. and they uh credited you in the playbill i remember and you you got a cut of, yep. of the uh the box office for that so that was really and nice. that's why i'm i'm podcasting here from on top of my pile of money <laughs> um and i'm looking forward to the movie coming out whenever it gets yeah. rescheduled oh yeah i mean we all are Oof, that blow. that trailer like oh i cry yeah yeah whoa boy let's get back on track what was it like stepping into the Taylorverse for the first time? It's fascinating because I barely knew anything about her besides that she existed. And I, I knew about like the Kanye thing, but I never I never saw that. You know, I hadn't watched it at the time. And I actually uh, I kind of like wasn't interested as much in the celebrity gossip aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So the first time I ever actually saw, the VMA footage where Kanye interrupts her. I'm gonna let you finish. (laughs) It was in her documentary that she released like earlier this year. Oh my God. And, and I watched that and I was like, oh wow, he was really being a jerk. I had no idea. (laughs) You know, I always kind of thought uh, the sort of Taylor side had had been exaggerating it a bit or i was i'm like i'm sure it was like oh no beyonce had the best album of all time and i was i was stunned (laughs) it was like so mean and so 
bizarre and unhinged. And I was just like, wow, that was as bad as everyone said. No wonder, no wonder people don't like that guy. In any case, yeah. So I knew, I knew of Taylor Swift as like a cultural touchstone and sort of almost like as a punchline, right? And in my mind, she was just like some, you know, sort of like a teeny bopper kind of popular singer. And I didn't know much beyond that. I had to do this research. So I, I, you know, typed Taylor Swift into YouTube and was like, okay, I'm just going to listen to a few of, you know, her big hits and, and see what's up. So I started with You Belong With Me, which incidentally is the one that infamously defeated single ladies <laughs> at the VMAs. And long story short, you know, I looked up like 10 hours later and it was time to go to sleep a while ago. And I was like, oh, well, okay, this is not poking fun at the idea of Taylor Swift. This is now like, if I can just like do the very best that I possibly can, I might be able to capture even, you know, the slightest tribute to the genius that I have now borne witness to. Within the week I had kind of bought all the albums on iTunes and within another few days I'd bought all the versions that had like the special edition bonus tracks. Um, And I was a fan, it was complete. So what was Brandon's song about? The song was kind of about, it was called uh, My Song, which of course our song is a Taylor Swift song, Uh, but it was about like finding your own voice in a way And there was kind of a thing where, you know, she's singing this and it's not her song, but it's a song that's about like trusting in your own voice. And the the Taylor Swift type character, whose name I think was Chelsea Wilson, um, like appears to her in, in, you know, the the various characters appear to and and converse with her in like these Walter Mitty-esque fantasies. And she, you know, later we get like a reprise of it where she like actually like accepts the message of it and that like helps her to you know go out and and sort of do her own thing which is which is neither you know that character nor the weird prog rock brand but like her own brand of of somewhere right and and of course that's the the lesson we all learn and i think it uh you know culminates in a performance at a mall uh which is all very very like 90s core the song didn't end up serving the needs of the piece and was eventually cut but Brandon was just getting started with Taylor. You know, at first I was just very much like, I dig these songs, they're super fun. And and it was it was definitely like something that had been missing in my life. It was sort of a reflection of a lot of wider cultural things, you know, like rockism and poptimism and that kind of thing, where I was sort of learning to em- embrace things that maybe I had uh, ignored and uh, maybe changing my outlook on, on what kind of popular entertainment w- had value. Mm-hmm. It kind of allowed me to reevaluate, you know, oh, all of those songs when I was in seventh grade that I heard on the radio and liked, but like didn't tell people that I liked. I should just tell people that I like those now because they're all good. You know, I should I should be proud that I enjoyed listening to Britney Spears and NSYNC. And the Spice Girls and fictional phenomenons Josie and the Pussycats. Because those songs are great. They they hold up, you know, many of them written by and produced by some of the same people who work with Taylor Swift, uh, you know, not not on these latest few albums, but in in much of her heyday. Mm -hmm. And. You know, I kind of gained uh, an appreciation for that. And as a writer, you know, it was like, here's a whole new set of of tools and ideas that I can use when I'm writing songs and thinking about how songs function and what they do. I had kind of discovered more about myself by, by listening to these songs and become more in touch with 
with things that maybe I hadn't been willing to express or, or consider about myself, you know, she would write these songs about breakups and, and things and, um, you know, men who did her wrong. Uh, and I think a lot of her fans related and was like, yeah, that, that happened to me. And I may have in some cases been like, oh, I'm the bad guy in this song. Like, oh, I, now I understand what the perspective of the other person in that relationship was that, wow. uh, interesting. And, and I mean, truly like I, it unlocked ways of thinking for me. I mean, at the time I heard the album, I had somewhat recently gone through a breakup and I remember listening to I Almost Do, uh, where she says, you know, just know that like every time I don't call, I almost do. Like I can't because it's too hurtful to like, I can't go back to that, you know. And I was like, oh, that's why like I was never able to return uh, this stuff that she mm-hmm. left here. OK, got it. But when the Red Album dropped in 2012, that's when Brandon got into Taylor as a personality. I bought the deluxe edition of red that was at target exclusive on the day it came out at the target in brooklyn across from the barclays center Mm. uh on my way to see rush play the barclays center (laughs) um and i was like i wonder if i'm the only person in this crowd right now with a taylor swift cd in like my windbreaker pocket tied around my waist uh, you know at the on these floor seats um, like really enjoying this concert, but also being like, man, when I get home, I cannot wait to rock out to the new Taylor Swift album complete with bonus tracks, uh, which I did. I mean, it was amazing. You know, I, I had been, uh, you know, headbanging to 2112, uh, <laughs> and, and a couple hours later I was hearing all too well for the first time, which, uh, I think everyone knows is her masterpiece being a fan during an era when she was releasing new music for the first time opened me up into more of like what her persona was and and of course that album was the one where she was shifting toward pop and and so there was a larger conversation about that happening in the culture um, and it was a very well received album uh, in a lot of ways critically although um, I mean my secret hot take that'll get me kicked out of the Swifty Club is I think Red is actually the most overrated album uh, mainly because you know mainly because there are the back half just has some clunkers on it it has some of her best songs but then it has like way too much filler and I think if you like I could make a track list version like of Red that cuts out I don't know five songs and it would and I mean, honestly, it would have won album of the year then, you know, she didn't, she didn't consult me. Soon, Taylor was synonymous with her songs. What drew me to her writing is this willingness to open up and be so vulnerable and confront the reality of of how she's feeling. And so much ink has been spilled about like, you know, it's all, it's all like a cipher for like some real life experience and who are the songs about and what it was always crazy to me that she would come under criticism and people would be like, well, she just writes about all her ex-boyfriends. I was like, that, that's all like 90% of all popular music is that what, what are you talking about? Like that's, that's like, of course she's a songwriter. What, what else do they do? You know, I mean, yeah, write what you, you know. know. She, yeah, yeah. As if like writing about personal details was like something cheap that she did to like, I, I don't know, trick us instead of the most difficult and important part of songwriting. I mean, there's, there are songs that I think like, mm, I would have done this differently or like, oh, that's not as effective as this could have been here. But in terms of of the storytelling and 
in terms of telling the truth mm-hmm. and by the truth, I mean like telling the, you know, the dramatic truth, telling the truth that matters to the story. Um, she is one of the best there is really. Uh, and, and I, I find that her ability to cut right to the, the heart of it and, and choose just a sentence that like breaks your heart or just shocks you with its candor is is her gift. In a way, Taylor's songs do exactly what good musicals do. When her emotions are too big for mere words, she must break into song. The universally agreed upon number one best Taylor Swift song by, by Swifties worldwide is All Too Well. There's almost no debate. I, you know, everyone, that's number one with a bullet for everyone. And it's because of the writing. You know, it's not... Not that her performance isn't isn't good or that the arrangements aren't wonderful, but what gets people about that song is is the power of the story and the emotion. And, you know, uh, I highly recommend people check out just at least skip to that part of the Reputation Tour live on Netflix if you have it, because in the middle of the Reputation Tour, she came out and did uh, just an acoustic set, just her and a guitar. And that was obviously like the best part of the whole concert. And she did different, she did uh, Dancing With Our Hands Tied from, from the album. And then she did a different surprise song every night acoustic. Um, and when I saw her, we got uh, Fearless and it was raining. And, you know, that song has a lot of rain imagery as do many Taylor Swift songs. And I mean, it was, uh, it was like life-changingly great. And it was just you know this you know huge stadium football stadium and just her and the guitar and nothing else and i mean we were all locked in and to me like that is her power it also has a lot of photograph imagery memories as mental photographs is big in her work and and that's also um you know uh in this moment now capture it remember it you know she says and i mean it was riveting and and i think the the performance of all too well that's included on on the netflix film is is representative of that as best as you can get on on film anyway and and you can just see like when she gets to the climactic part of the bridge that everyone knows you called me up again just to break me like a promise so casually cruel in the name of being honest full disclosure i'd never heard this song before but brandon made me want to like the the breath leaves my lungs when i watch that it's it's so you know, it, it reminds me of all of the great old quotes about about lyric writing and, and songwriting and, uh, you know, Yip Harburg quoting uh, or, or sort of paraphrasing Maria Callas, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and saying you can't sing a lie and stay on pitch, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is which is just about like what makes the song work and, and the human voice in a way is is that you have to tell the truth that you're you're telling something that's true. And that's where the power is. The way that she shares of herself in her art is kind of the goal of what we all as artists ultimately want to be doing, right? And and I admire and envy how she does it. And also in a way feel like, I just feel like we understand each other in a way, you know, and like that's kind of, it sounds cheesy and maybe even a little creepy to say that, but, but I mean, during isolation, I've gotten really into K-pop. Uh, the relationship that they, uh, that industry tries to build between the fans and the idols is one where you feel like you know them. And the image that 
they are contractually required to to portray is like oh yeah we're we're actually real friends and we have a real personal connection and in fact like you know me and I'm available and like if we met maybe we would hit it off that's totally a skill that Taylor has this kind of savviness that is obviously in some way a facade but it kind of doesn't matter um and that's the magic trick you know and the sort of thing where she's like lurking online and just like replying to randos on twitter like oh glad you like the album and uh inviting people on tumblr to secret album listing parties and all of that kind of stuff as much as it's curated it's also i mean she's also doing that for real and it also is like there is something genuine in that and and the idea of her being the girl next door you know that was her first public image and how that has changed over time but still remain the same you know she still is in a way like the girl next door but is one of the most famous people in the world who lives next door and feeling like oh she also feels sad like i do sometimes uh even though she has so much money and success and there's something relatable about that that <laughs> You know, yeah, when she sings on Last Great American Dynasty is like a song about her buying a house, which is like, okay, I'll never be able to relate to that. Uh, But also when she sings on, I think it's in Mirrorball, she says like, uh, I was never a natural. All I do is try, 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 you know. And like she expresses a lot of feeling about like, I still don't, I still deal with doubts and I still feel like, Maybe I should have done something else with my life, even though I'm one of the most, you know, famous and prolific artists. I'm pretty sure that Brandon knows everything there is to know about Taylor Swift. I mean, he's written articles about his favorite lyrics in every single one of her songs. He has done extensive soul searching about why he loves her so much and what impact that should have on his art. We talked for two and a half hours. I mean, he's the perfect guest for this show, and his ability to call up details is amazing to me. My brain works a completely different way. If I'm going to create a show for Brandon, I need to take all of these details and feel out what the biggest themes are so that we can begin to structure the show around them. I think I have the information I need. All right, let's get super into it. One of the first questions I ask myself is, what is the event of this experience? Is it a birthday party or a job interview or a cruise? Something relatable so audiences will already have an idea of how to behave when they first walk in the door. Whatever we pick will suggest tools to sculpt the audience experience and give us opportunities to subvert their expectations. One thing that I'm hearing loud and clear from Brandon is that he's drawn to Taylor Swift because he feels like she's given up a lot of her privacy and security in order to deliver her message to fans. She's chosen a a path that is difficult, if rewarding, in order to to bring, it feels like, personal enlightenment to just me, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, I think every one of her fans feels that in a way, that, like, all, all of the stuff she did, all that she's gone through is so that she can share 
like this wisdom with me. She's not just putting her songs in the public's crosshairs, she's putting herself there. Do you remember The Artist is Present? It's that piece that Marina Abramovic did at MoMA back in 2010, where she set up for three months and sat in a chair for eight hours a day, staring silently into the eyes of strangers. A lot of them cried. I think about that, and I think about Yoko Ono's cut piece from 1964, where she laid on a stage and let the audience cut her clothing off. Something like that would really capture the vulnerability that Brandon sees in Taylor's work. What kind of relatable environment lends itself to that kind of performance? I'm starting to feel like it should be a museum. Beyond just being a place where art is displayed and critiqued, this works on a number of different levels. First of all, museums are thought of as these prim and proper places where you're not supposed to interact with the art. Well, we're definitely breaking that rule, and it's going to feel really scandalous to audiences. Second of all, we can use the fact that museums have these giant display cases to hold a magnifying glass up to Taylor's work. I mean, she writes a lot about interpersonal conflict. Can we trap her characters in these cases and have them fight it out? Do we have to get into the cases ourselves to resolve those conflicts? And there are a lot of museum tropes to play with. I mean, what is the Taylor Swift Museum audio tour like? What do we put on the placards for each piece of art? Is there some sort of museum hack style scavenger hunt to find connections between her songs? One of Brandon's observations really stuck with me. Go back to the very beginning, the first encounter I ever had with her was watching the video for You Belong With Me. And I think most people have, have seen this. If not, you should go watch it right now. It's so good. It's such a good video. And the premise of it is like she's the, the nerdy girl and, and, and she wants to get with a guy instead of the popular girl. But the, the core duality of Taylor Swift is, and she tells us in the video, is, is right there. She plays both those characters. She is the, the, the awkward girl, like, sitting in her bedroom in her pajamas and her, her goofy hair and, like, pining away. And she is also the number one it girl who has everything. And, and like, that's the secret. She's always been both of those things. The calculating businesswoman who is really savvy about how she puts her image out there and, and makes big moves and conquers the charts using a big bag of tricks. And she is that person, but she is also the girl with a guitar who couldn't get up the courage to tell the guy that she liked him. So these tableaus of lonely Starbucks lovers behind glass at a museum aren't just characters in conflict. They're different aspects of Taylor herself, and they're our ensemble. So who's the lead? When you look at a song like uh, Hey Steven, she says, you know, hey, th those other girls might be great, but would they write a song for you? And she does it, of course, in blank space. I got a blank space, I'll write your name. I mean, she, she writes about herself as the writer often. I mean, it's, it's very um, meta. This writer version of Taylor is definitely the driving force behind the warring Taylors in the museum. And framing the entire experience as a kind of pageant play that writer Taylor has dreamed up will allow us to elevate each story with theatricality and spectacle that might not exist in a naturalistic setting. How can we communicate that early? I feel like we have to introduce you to writer Taylor in the entry experience. 
What if guests access the museum by way of a dark, curved tunnel with portholes along one wall? You can peek through the portholes to find Taylor bathed in light, writing away in an infinite void. You can see other guests peeking through from different angles. Maybe their faces are suspended in picture frames. That's a motif she uses in a lot of her songs. Maybe she refers to them, like her muses or her memories. And we can pipe voiceover into the tunnel, so we can hear her internal monologue or what she's writing. And with a flourish of her pen, the walls of the tunnel can fly open, allowing guests to chart their own course through her museum. Brandon has some great instincts about what needs to happen in the museum section. I think what you want to craft somehow is like to be able to get a moment where you know, you're experiencing all of these individual versions of Taylor, and then somehow you get to a place where like, you all come together, and then you realize that all of these versions of Taylor have been somehow replaced with you, the audience, and then now there's just the one Taylor, because they all were the same one. Yeah. And like, and it's just all of you and her. Somehow that's the thing. <laughs> In order to achieve the kind of effect that Brandon's talking about, you need to know one key thing about audiences. It's much easier to take away their agency over the course of an experience than it is to give it to them. And with less agency comes more focus. So for example, if you make it clear that the audience is allowed to talk at the beginning of the show, they'll keep talking until something happens. Maybe you shush them. And shushing them will make them question what the rules of the experience are. They'll turn their focus outwards to context clues that might help them answer that question. But on the flip side, if they weren't allowed to talk in the beginning and were reprimanded for trying, it's really hard to get them to try again. They get less focused and turn inward, thinking they might have interpreted the show wrong. Knowing this, we can do a little experiential sleight of hand. After exploring the museum freely for a few minutes, our characters can pull the audience members onto specific tracks, engaging them each in a different story and giving them opportunities to participate. If each story has a binary outcome, maybe one of the tailors wins out over the others, that tailor can be released from the tableau and disappear from the museum without being noticed. Brandon tells me that Taylor used to hide secret messages in the liner notes for her albums. Maybe those figure into this distraction, and by the time you've figured out this escape room style puzzle, audience members have replaced Taylor in each of the museum's display cases. The audience completing the museum puzzle gives us a natural transition into our climax, the big fearless moment, Taylor alone in the rain with her guitar. And Brandon suggests some very specific inspiration we might want to bring in. I mean, this is gonna re this is gonna really go into a place here, but I do think about this a lot. It's kind of the relationship people have with Jesus in a way, um, <laughs> you know, like in the same in the same way. Like Jesus has a duality where it's like Jesus is is the Son of God, but Jesus is also like a human, and like that is like the interesting part. And church is in a way theater where you you reenact a performance of like the life and death of Jesus Christ. And then you're sent out into the world to follow that example, right? Yeah. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Immersive theater almost always dips into religion for ideas for rules or rituals that could enhance the audience experience. And this idea that Taylor somehow ascends and calls you to worship with her music is super compelling. This is an opportunity to realign the audience's perspective after they've been on their own adventures for so long. Maybe it references some of your specific actions from earlier in the show and recontextualizes them in some kind of musical madlib. 
tailor-made just for us. But what is the actual message that Taylor is trying to share here? It needs to be something quintessentially her. We found some inspiration in Taylor's performance of Blank Space at the American Music Awards in 2014. I watched every day for months. I I was so obsessed with this video, uh, and it was very hard to find because you know it, it wasn't just like available. It, people had to be like skirting copyright laws to get it out there. So I had to go like find it on Daily Motion of all things, right? And in this video, uh, you know, in this stage performance, she does a bunch of different magic tricks. There's fire. Um, there's uh, people swinging around on on wires, and it's all built to make it look effortless for her. Um, and and like everyone around her is just like rearranging everything to create this very cool effect. And it was very clear, like, this is someone who's not, she's not a natural performer, right? I mean, she's she's a natural performer in terms of like, the like conveying the story and, and like giving you that truth. Like she has, she has the charisma, she has the presence. But in terms of like, just like the technical, like, dance and movement and and just like you know live live vocals and all that that's not her element she's doing it of necessity because she wants to create this particular experience you know she often says like she wants her concerts to feel like a broadway show like she wants these big production values and she has so many like outlandish ideas about you know what the sets are going to be look like i mean her her desire to like really conceive of of every aspect of it that's that's her thing she loves having the ideas and and she builds these concepts that she then has to figure out how she can execute because she's reaching beyond like maybe what she's even capable of and i think that video showcases how she crafts a a visual world and and a, a live performance that showcases what she can do and plays to her strengths as a performer while creating the illusion that, you know, it's very easy for her to pull off. And even more empowering than telling your audiences to play to their strengths is giving them permission to celebrate their weaknesses, something that Brandon feels Taylor does in all of her live shows. When she sings, her mic is always so hot. Yes, there you know, you can hear that there's a guide vocal playing that's lower, but like, She's not lip syncing and she really wants you to know it even even when it's maybe not that stable. <laughs> That's just so her aesthetic is like, I want you to be able to hear that this is the real me, mm. even if it means it doesn't sound perfect. And you can see that even in this, even in this performance of blank space where she's, you know, clearly like crafted it to be like, oh, I can handle everything that we're doing in this. When she gets to the big like high, like sort of like descant moment in, in the final chorus, you can see that she really like scrunches up her face and you, you just see like everything about like her effortlessness drops and she's just like, no, I got to get this one right. And, mm. and, and you can really see like the work the, the work she's doing and it's almost like the way that like watching Nicolas Cage act you're like wow you, you really see like how hard it is to be an actor it's not effortless this tells me something really important about how we get into this fearless moment this isn't some new all-powerful tailor written by the same girl we met in the beginning this is actually her and it's an evolution of her she needs to wander the halls of her own museum she needs to see what you're doing with and to her characters and your actions are what give her the strength to become something new 
You're manifesting this tailor. Maybe the museum tailors give her an offering based on your actions, and form a processional that leads the whole group to the stage in the rain. Looking back, the empty display cases and pedestals will look like tombstones. It's funny to, like, to bring it full circle. I mean, I, I first encountered Taylor Swift. It was just like me sitting alone, like watching her videos. And I was like, oh, she made this for me. Mm. You know, and it's and it's actually something that I say in I think even like even on like my bio, I try to I, I often end my artist bio with. I hope you like this. I made it for you. Hmm. Um, like that ethos really inspired me. You know, that's, that is what I want to say because I am, I am making it for you. Even if I, we've never met, like I made this thing so that someone would enjoy it. Hmm. And, and I think that's one of the ways I've really connected with her is like that feeling of wanting, like I do, I wanted to share this specific part of myself with you specifically. So how do we give the audience that feeling? The feeling that this godlike figure sees them and knows them intimately. Do we also have to bring her an offering? What if each guest gets a minute alone with Taylor and she somehow knows something deep and dark about them? With the right actress, it could be a cold reading based on your body language. Or maybe it's based on how you played tonight. Or maybe we've even done research in advance. In the immersive off-Broadway show, Queen of the Night, each night, one audience member received a love letter from her actual mother and got to read it in a secret room with a special view of the stage. Now there are companies like Any One Thing that crawl the internet for personal information about you to be used in immersive experiences, with your consent, of course. But a one-on-one -on -one with Taylor can't be the main content for this climactic moment. This is the first time the whole audience is together, and we need to maintain that intimate connection that Taylor's built with each guest through whatever limit-testing performance she's about to deliver. That tells me it needs to be in the round, and maybe we're acting as the ensemble in her Blank Space music video, making sure she wants for nothing, and she rewards us with the stories she sings. If you can send people away from whatever this experience would be, feeling that like, oh, I just want to connect with someone by, by creating an experience of like, something we share, some, some shared human experience and connect with them. Like that's, that is what she, she gives to us, I think. Uh, a map for how to do that in, in so many uh, extravagant ways, uh, big and small. But ultimately, it's about, hey, I, I had this thing I really wanted to share, and I wanted to share it with you. Both Taylor and Brandon are big on full circle moments, so it feels fitting that we leave this experience through the same hallway we entered through. What's in the vitrine where writer Taylor once sat? Have our faces been captured on camera? Do they populate the picture frames? Is there something we leave behind for the next audience to discover? My producer brain says that we probably lean into another museum trope, and this hallway has become the gift shop. So that's our show. For more information on Brandon Michael Loudon, check out his website at bookmusiclyrics.com. His work was recently featured in We Song Cycle, an international project featuring musical theater writers from Japan, Australia, Korea, Canada, the UK, and the US. 
It's available for free on YouTube. I'll drop a link in the description. I actually worked with Wee Song Cycle creator Maki Shibuya back in 2016 on Broadway Asia's immersive production of Peter Pan's Adventure Island. She's a wonderful director. Remember, this kind of brainstorm is just one step in developing an immersive experience. Ideas grow and change as you introduce new collaborators, the limitations of a physical venue, and most importantly, an audience. I'll explore each of these crucial ingredients in future episodes with my guests' passions as a guide. I also plan to introduce you to other live experience creators who interpret ideas through very different lenses. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Dr. Jesse Briggs, Angela Santello, and Andrea Grody, who introduced me to Brandon when I first moved to New York City. Our theme music is by the incomparable Jess Elizabeth. If you're super into something and want to be featured on the show, fill out the form at zamchick.com. 